following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Morning, everyone. How are you doing this morning? I have to admit, before I get started, that the process for coming to this message was different for me. Um, I mean, I, I wrote it and, and, you know, got the videos, PowerPoint stuff all together. Everything came together just fine. But it's just remained, and still even now, remains a bit unsettled. And um, part of that, I think, is, is a personal difficulty with addressing this issue, uh, which I'm going to get into a little bit later. Um, but I think part of it also is I've kind of felt, especially in the last couple of days, really being pulled out of this message. So I've, I've kind of been removed from it, um, which isn't to say that I'm not going to say anything, obviously, because, you know, that wouldn't work. But I just feel like this is God's like, all right, can you just, just get out of the way for a little bit and just let me speak. So I don't know what that's going to mean for you. Um, if it's terrible, that's his fault. Don't blame me. Um, but um, it also might mean, I mean, it could be just another Sunday. You know, it could be just, you know, we come together, we sing some songs very well, um, and, and we, we, we hear a message, and we, we get a nice lesson to think about, we go on our way, and that's that. Could be. Or it could be something very different this morning. It could be something, the start of something. It could be something that God's trying to do in one of you, or more fearfully, in me. <laughs> that could change everything. So I don't know. We shall, we shall see. But it's funny, I've, 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 you know what, before we get into it, let me pray. I think that's a good note to start with prayer. Lord, um, you know what, what's, what you want to say today. You know what you want people to hear. Um, you know what you want people to do. And Lord, I just ask that I do not betray that and that I do not get in the way, um, but that the words that I've got here in front of me or the ones that you want spoken will be spoken. And um, most of all, Lord, most of all, I ask that you would peel open our hearts and let us hear, let us feel, let us experience what it is you want us to experience this morning and that we may go away knowing or understanding or at least peaked as to what is going to happen next. As in your name we pray, amen. All right, so this morning's message is four words. Words are kind of funny. I don't know if words are funny to you. Fair enough. So by themselves, they hold very little meaning. Um, in fact, it's interesting. I have a friend of mine who's here. Andrew Monk is here this morning. And I think you did a uh, thesis on in how the word in the Bible does not actually hold meaning it only holds meaning in a sentence, right? That's the sentence that holds meaning. I was thinking of that this week as I was preparing, so weird. Uh, but anyway, so the words themselves, they're innocuous. They don't, they don't hold a lot of meaning by themselves. But you start putting them together in sentences, and suddenly things start happening, and they kind of gather meaning, and they have, gather force and power behind them. And so even a, a sentence with as few as four words 
can become this enormous thing in our lives. You know, like four words can bring you a lot of joy. For example, you could, will you marry me? Brings a lot of joy. I think I'm pregnant. Brings a lot of joy. Or you, four words can fill your life with fear. We have a problem. Are you sitting down? I think I'm pregnant. All can, can just bring fear into your lives. Four words can even change the course of history. I have a dream. Let there be light. Four words have the power to completely change our lives. And this morning, I want to look at four little words, well, three little words, one kind of medium-sized word, that Jesus used, that if we hear them, will change our lives forever. We encounter these four little words in a very common, very familiar passage in the book of Luke, chapter 10, which does not mean, of course, if you don't know this passage, that you're not a very good Christian. It just means that we we talk about it a lot from the front sometimes. So Luke chapter 10, Jesus, he's presumably teaching the crowds or he's hanging out with the disciples. We don't really know. But the scene kind of unfolds this way and the words will be up on the screen or if you have little book things called Bibles, you can open those up and have a look. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Well, we'll pause in the story just for a second. So we have an expert in the law, okay? This is one of your, your I don't know, lawyer slash theologian types, okay? He was the one who knew the Bible inside and out, at least the Bible as they had it, the Old Testament in those times. And he knew it inside and out. He knew all of the ins and outs and he teaches people and he is considered an expert. Hence his name, expert in the law. You probably picked that up yourself. So he wants to test Jesus. And maybe he's trying to establish his control and his authority over Jesus, because Jesus was this up-and-coming sort of superstar doing miracles, teaching people, everybody liked him. And the teacher of the law maybe feels a little, you know, insecure. So he wants to put him in his place, and so he asks him a question. Or maybe he's just trying to feel Jesus out, see what happens. And so he asks this question, he asks a fundamental question, a common question of that day. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How do I get good with God? It's kind of like one of those what's the meaning of life type questions, you know? Deep, deep question. And this is where it kind of gets a little interesting. Because, I mean, you would think that this is an absolute perfect launch pad for Jesus. I mean, here he is. He is here on earth to proclaim the kingdom of God and to tell everybody that he is the way to God, right? I mean, here is this guy. He's given him an underarm pitch. How do I get eternal life? I mean, this is the perfect time for your, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me type speeches, you know? But he doesn't. He sends this guy back to the law, the Old Testament law, which, of course, this guy would have known. 
Why does he do that? I mean, isn't he here to replace the law? Why send him back to the law? Well, I have a nitpicky answer, of course, because, you know, if you follow the law, which he said is, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and all of that, well, Jesus is God. So to love God is to love Jesus and listen to him. So it's kind of a roundabout way of getting to that point, right? But I think, I think that misses a deeper and simpler truth. His answer to that question, how do I inherit eternal life? What does the law say? He says, love God, love other people. And this is kind of a common thing back then. It's, um, a lot of scholars would suggest that these two laws put together were a common way of summing up the whole Old Testament law. The whole law is wrapped up in love God and love each other. So the whole law is one simple idea. Love. Love is the law. Love is the core of God's plans for his people. So you tell me, what has changed? If someone rocked up to Jesus today and said, how do I inherit eternal life? Do you think his answer would be any different? Love the Lord your God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, loving God has a few extra little details that have changed since the Old Testament. Salvation is a brilliant part of that. But that's the transaction. That's the part that gets us into the kingdom of God. When we are there, what do we do? We love. We love God and we love our neighbor as ourselves. And that really shouldn't surprise us because the Bible says God is love, right? That's kind of what he's made of, is love. That's who he is. He, he acts, he thinks, he is love. So yeah, that makes sense that his law, his way that he wants his people to live will be encapsulated by love. Now, this doesn't really satisfy our expert friend here. He, uh, I think he's probably feeling a little embarrassed that he's asked a question that he really ought to know the answer to and got shown up by Jesus. So he pushes the issue a little bit. He, kind of, he wants to go a little bit more detail, and he wants to kind of get a little bit extra. And it leads to one of the most famous parables of Jesus. Uh, starting in again at verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be walking down the road, and when he saw the man, he passed over to the other side and kept going. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an end and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. 
Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. So, expert in the law, he asks this question, he's covering his tracks, who is my neighbor? Of course, Jesus is very happy now to take this opportunity to express exactly how he wants love to be acted out to be expressed. Now, as a preacher, my go-to move in this parable is to jump on the Samaritan thing. Because, you know, like the priest and the Levite, these guys would have been expected to help this man because he was a Jew. And the Samaritan was expected to just completely walk the other way because Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And so you kind of, this presence of a Samaritan would have been deeply embarrassing for the Jewish listeners that their heroes had passed them by and the enemy had helped them. But again, I want to, I don't want to focus in on the Samaritan. I want to focus in on the injured man. And I want to skip to the end, if I may. Um, not that you can do anything about that. I want to I cheat, skip right down to the question at the end, which hopefully is still up on your screen here. After telling the story, Jesus asked this very poignant question. Who do you think was a neighbor to the man in the ditch. Who was the one who was fulfilling the law of God by loving his neighbor as himself? Which one? I think the expert rather sheepishly, and note he doesn't name him as a Samaritan. He says, the one who showed mercy. The one who showed mercy. And right there, we have pinpointed the crux of the issue. The whole point, right there, to love your neighbors to show mercy. So we're left with a very simple equation, and I know it's a bit early for math, but we have a very simple equation here that we can gather from, from the story. God equals love equals mercy. Not a surprise. I don't think I'm, I'm, you know, revolutionizing anybody's understanding of God here. And it shouldn't be surprising because we see it in the Bible all over the place. Let me just rapid fire hit through some of the passages uh, in the Old Testament and, and in the New. Psalm 72, 12 to 14. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his, height, in his sight. Again, later in Psalm 146, He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Isaiah 61, 1-2 in a prophecy, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And it should not surprise anybody that in Luke chapter 4, Jesus walks into a synagogue, sits down, opens that passage up, reads it out and says, this is what I am going to do. 
because God lifts the oppressed. God loves to help those who need help. It becomes the mantra, the mission statement for the Messiah, for His Son. So the Bible paints a very, very clear picture of God's heart for the oppressed. He, he loves those who are oppressed. But something changes from Luke chapter 4, where Jesus says, I am taking on this mantra for myself, and Luke chapter 10. Something very significant has shifted. And that shift, that change, is summed up in four words. The last four words of this passage. The four words that will change our lives. After the expert in the law identified the Samaritan as the neighbor to the injured man, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. We are no longer spectators to the glorious plan of God. We're no longer shepherds or even angels watching in on the nativity scene, joyously proclaiming that God is saving the world. We are now active participants. We are taking Luke 4 as our mission statement, our mantra. It is our role to lift up to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set free the captives. These words deny us the comfort of sitting on the sideline. They deprive us of the hope that someone else will come along and help. We are the neighbors to the injured man. We cannot wait for anyone else. It is us. We are the ones to show mercy. So who is he? Who is the man in the ditch? Who is the one who has fallen into the hands of robbers? I don't think it takes a lot of imagination to come up with a very long list of people who fit that sort of description. People in our world, in our country, in our city, in our community, even our families who are downtrodden, oppressed, hurting. This morning, I want to broaden our view a little bit. I want to take a little bit of a global view. I want to introduce a group of people who certainly fit this description, left in the ditch, half dead, in need of mercy. Have a look at this video. I think for a lot of us, slavery, like the video says, something we kind of associate as history, especially American history, although they weren't the only ones. But for 27 million people around the world, it's not history, it's present. It's very real. People who are forced into labor, forced to working for little or no money at all, under threat of violence, to pay off debts, forced to do things I don't even want to say. 
27 million people. That's the population of New Zealand and Australia combined. Every last one of us. Slavery is one, I, it's been on my mind a little bit lately, and, and it's, it's, yeah. Slavery, it, it is, it's illegal in every country in the world. Yet it is present in 167 countries around the world, including the likes of US and UK, and yes, us, New Zealand. According to the Global Slavery Index, there's an estimated up to 600 people in New Zealand caught in slavery. Really? <laughs> us? We're such a progressive society. I mean, don't we live in such a progressive world that we've just fought back evil? I mean, yes, I know there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. I know poverty is rampant and stuff, but this is different. This is, this is intentional. This is one person saying, I'm going to own you. You're mine. And I'm going to make you do whatever it is I want you to do. I just, it just is such a badge of shame on us as a human nature, as a, as a, that we would let this sort of thing exist. But it does. It is such a slap in the face to the image of God that we wear. But it is lucrative. According to the International Labor Organization, it is the second largest global organized crime in the world brings in $150 billion a year. That's more than Amazon, eBay, and Google combined. Two-thirds of that goes towards the red light industry, or comes from that industry. That's nearly $100 billion coming out of that. And yes, by the way, $150 billion is more than New Zealand makes. That's more than our entire GDP. 20% of victims, one in five are children. 55% of forced labor victims are women and girls. In some countries around the world, as many as 4% of the entire population are trapped in slavery. So what do we do about it? As a Christian community, what is our response? How do we, how do we act in the face of all of this? 27 million men, women, and children if all of us in New Zealand and Australia were trapped in slavery, if we were all slaves today, what would we want America to do about it? What would we want Britain to come in and, and, and do about that? What would we want Christians sitting in churches around the globe, how would we want them to think about that? Are we as a Christian community are we willing to pass by on the other side of the road? Are we waiting for a Samaritan to come along? Are we waiting for someone, a secular person who has no spiritual mandate, who does not even recognize the image of God that is stamped on all of these people, yet still has the compassion to go out and help them? Is that what we're waiting for? Or worse, no one? But what can we do then? I mean, honestly, what can we do? It is so big. I mean, $150 billion industry comes, I mean, <laughs> with a certain amount of protection. You know, it's established. 
It's ingrained in cultures. It's interwoven with governments. What can we do? What can I do? Uh, Nothing, I guess. I don't have the influence. I don't have the resources. I don't have the personal strength to take on something like this. But perhaps maybe I... Neither did Gideon. Neither did Paul. Neither did Daniel. The Bible is littered, and history is littered with stories of people who had absolutely nothing to offer until God got involved. Until God said, you, you, come here, I'm going to make you do something. I'm going to get you to change the world. And the world changed. You could ask Moses. You're going to hear a lot about this guy in this coming year as we go through the book of Exodus. Moses was a man, I mean, he's running, he was charged with murder, ran away, he was a sheep farmer for 40 years in Midian, 80 years old, nothing to offer, until God got involved, little burning bush, and then he changed the world, took on the leader of the most powerful country in the world, led all of the slaves out, you know the story. Perhaps you should talk to William Wilberforce, member of parliament around the end of the 1700s, beginning of 1800s, not a really especially impressive person, hesitant, until God got involved, put on his heart the abolition of the slave trade in England, took him his whole life, but he did it, changed the world as we know it. And all of these, they're just people, they share our DNA, they share our weaknesses, our hesitancies. But they just simply refuse to let the man die in the gutter. They refuse to pass by on the other side. They refuse to suppress their compassion and mercy. So I ask you, why not us? Why not now? Like I said, this may be Another Sunday. This may be another thing that, and you may hear it and, and you may really take it in and you may not feel anything and God may not be calling you into anything. That's fine. There's no judgment here. But maybe, maybe this morning is your burning bush. Maybe this morning is the time in which God says, hey, hey, pay attention. I'm going to ask you to do something. And once I've asked you to do it, you have to choose yes or no. You cannot choose eh. You cannot choose ignorance is bliss. You cannot choose I'll think about it later. Maybe now is the time God is saying, all right, let's do this. Maybe now is the time God is saying, I have heard the cries of my people. My people caught in slavery, and now is the time I want to do something about it. And guess what? This movie stars you. Maybe. So with that in mind, I want to challenge us to take on this, regardless of where we are with this. I think there's there's a four-point plan 
that we can do, an action plan, something that we can step in and do, all of us. First thing that we can do is we can pray. Book of the, the writer of the book of James, James, he reminds us, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Not suggesting we pray for no rain. Suggesting that prayer is powerful. Suggesting that when we pray for mercy, when we pray for the oppressed to be lift up, when we pray for the captives to be set free, it aligns with the heart of God. Our hearts align with His. It brings Him great joy to hear us plead their case. So I encourage you to pray. Pray for the victims of slavery, for those who are vulnerable for getting caught up in slavery, for those who are trying to do something about it. Pray that God will place His power in the middle of their work and revolutionize the world as we know it. Pray that William Wilberforce's work will be finished. Pray that slavery will become a history subject, not a social studies subject. And pray for what we should do. But in case we're getting too theoretical here, I want to stop for a minute, and and I want to actually pray. We're a church who prays. And I I wanted to, one of the most vulnerable and, and largest demographics that are caught up and that are vulnerable to slavery, a young woman. And so I've asked Beth, one of our young ladies here, to come and to pray on their behalf. If you want to come on up. All right, the second thing that we can do is we can learn. Learn more about what's going on. I know ignorance is bliss. This is actually a scary step to take because opening up our minds to what's happening <laughs> can be a bit difficult. There's a couple of websites I want to point you towards. Um, Enditmovement.com. This is the one where the video came from. It's kind of a lot of the inspiration for what I've been sharing with you today. A great place to start. Um, And you can see a lot of the organizations from there that are are really working in the industry to try and and bring about change. Uh, A little bit deeper, you can get Walk Free Foundation. Uh, This is a great, this this shows a lot of the current campaigns in a way that you can um, very easily, just with a click of a button, put your name to some of these campaigns trying to um, get change happening amongst governments and amongst uh, organizations. Um, It also has the, they, they put out the Global Slavery Index, which I mentioned. This is just a report on the state of slavery, modern slavery around the world. Recommend you have a read of that. Um, it's just a, a download, free download. So have a peruse of these sites. Pay attention to what's happening around the world and what's happening in here as you read it. As, as the Spirit kind of comes through this process and tugs at you, or not, as the case may be. Third thing we can do is to speak. This is the easiest thing that we can do, a practical thing. The 27th of February this year is Shine a Light on Slavery Day. Um, And the idea is that everybody will put a red X. I was actually going to do that this morning. A red X on your hand. Just a red X. 
and marker, duct tape, whatever you want. And as you go throughout the day, as people ask you why you got a red X on your hand, you can share. I'm standing up against slavery. Slavery's wrong. It still exists. It's out here. People are stuck in slavery, and I, I just don't like it. And I'm going to do what I can to raise awareness to make this an issue that we need to deal with. And the fourth one is the real hard one. The fourth thing we can do is act. Now, again, I've got a couple of options for you. An easy option and a hard option. The easy option is, and this will be highlighted in the, in the second video I'm going to show you in a little bit, is uh, the end of movement is doing this promotion where you, you sign up to be a freedom fighter, which essentially is nothing more than you give $7 towards the cause that goes to the organizations that are fighting slavery, and you recruit 27 other people. And those 27 other people will then give $7 to the, to the cause and recruit 27 more people. Like a triangle scheme, but, you know, without the jail time. So just a simple way that we can spread. And all that we are doing is giving $7 and asking someone to do the same. So I, ha I have a little bit of a sign-up sheet, and, and I'm going to do that. That's one thing I'm going to do is I'm going to find 27 people. I'd like you guys to be the 27 people, if that's all right. <laughs> I'm asking you that you give $7 and then you find 27 of your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors to do the same. So you can see me afterwards about that. The other part of the hard part, this is the part where I didn't want to speak this message. This is the part where I oscillated back and forth about maybe I should do that. No, nah, I could do something else. I could preach something else. Because I didn't really want to face this part. And this part is to open yourself up to God asking you to do more. And that is scary as anything, to really open myself up, to be like Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. I wonder if his knees were shaking when he did that. I struggle to really genuinely open myself up and say, God, send me. Put me in the darkest place and, and let me help those who are oppressed. To open myself up to truly say, I'm going to stop and help this man bandage his wounds. But that's what I'm asking. No, I think that's what God's asking. Not that we will say, fine, I'll go, but that we will say, here I am, Lord, send me. Do you want me? Or do you want me for something else? That's fine. He's got lots of pots on the boil, you know, lots of stuff going on. He may not want you involved in this, but he may. And we will not know unless we open ourselves up to it. William Wilberforce laid out the challenge perfectly. When he was speaking before Parliament about the abolition of the stopping of the slave trade, he gave this very <laughs> difficult and rather pointed saying, he says, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say you did not know. If you want to see me up front afterwards, I'm going to be here. I've got my little sign-up sheet. I can pray. We can talk about something. I don't know what the next step is. Maybe we can discover that together. God saw fit to send his son, his most beloved 
to earth to die, to set his captives free, to rescue us from the ditch. He did not pass by on the other side. Could have, deserved to. We certainly deserved to be there. But he is love, and that could not sit with him. So he did it. And then he sat on a rock, and he looked out at us, and he says, go and do likewise. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.